Welcome to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette, with your host Steve Garrett, MC and DJ at one of the largest Corvette weekends in the country, Corvette Fun Fest, president of the Corvette Club of Kansas City, Missouri, and radio disc jockey at the number one radio station in Kansas City for over 40 years. Here's Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. I appreciate you tuning in. You can listen to Corvette Today on all podcast platforms like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Pandora, Stitcher, Audible, and many more. You can also listen on your smart device. Just say Alexa or Hey Google, play the podcast called Corvette Today, and you're connected. Also, visit the Corvette Today website. It's corvettetodaypodcast.com. You can also sign up for Corvette Today notifications, updates, and information at corvettetoday.ck.page. And don't forget, join the Corvette Today Facebook group. We have over 2,300 members, and I'd love to have you as a member as well. First, I'd like to thank our flagship sponsors of Corvette Today, midenginecorvetteforum.com. If you'd like to join a new vibrant forum that focuses on the new mid-engine C8 Corvette, it's free to join this friendly community. You'll meet a lot of fellow Corvette enthusiasts like yourself at midenginecorvetteforum.com. Another new flagship sponsor of Corvette Today is eTech. eTech is the expert and leader in custom flooring. Whether it's your garage floor, basement, patio, or front steps of your home, or a professional workplace, eTech is four times stronger than epoxy and comes with a 15-year warranty. There are hundreds of different patterns to choose from, and installation is completed in one day. You can walk on your floor in 24 hours. Call for a free estimate at 913-745-3732 or visit etechcustomcoatings.com. 913-745-3732 or etechcustomcoatings.com. I have my garage floor done with eTech and absolutely love it, and I know you'll love yours. You can see the pictures of it on my blog at CorvetteTodayPodcast.com. Also, a shout-out to CanadianCorvetteForum.com, welcoming Corvette owners from around the world. My guest on Corvette today is an avid motorsport and aviation enthusiast. He's also the founder and retired CEO of Bloomington Gold, and he created the gold certification judging procedures. He's one of the world's experts in determining the metrics used to measure the originality or non-originality, as the case may be, of collectible vehicles and aircraft. He co-authored the book called Corvette Restoration, State of the Art. His museum quality restorations have set the bar for today's Corvette and car restorers around the world. He is Mr. David Burroughs. David, welcome to Corvette Today. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate the invitation. I'm glad to have you on. David, let's talk about your early years. I always ask everybody this. When did you know you were a car guy? Somewhere probably around five or six, somewhere in there. I asked my dad for a birthday present for my parents, but my dad normally for this. I wanted carburetors and starters. I was fascinated with carburetors and starters, and I could take them apart. And so he would get carburetors and starters and other components out of engines and give them to me for my birthday. They were junk that I could take them apart and fiddle with them and put them back together again. And then that led to more things in automobiles and then go-karts, build soapbox derby cars and then regular powered go-karts and then go-kart racing. Kind of went on from there. 
that's kind of interesting because when most kids that age are looking for Tonka trucks and Hot Wheels, you're looking for carburetors, aren't you? Yes, carburetors and starters. Now, I had no idea what they did. I knew it was a carburetor, but I didn't really know. I knew gasoline came out of it. But I was five or six years old, and I lived, I lived on a farm. I still live there, as a matter of fact. So as a farm kid, I was around tractors and trucks and engines and noise and smoke and gasoline. Great place to grow up as a kid. So I had my fingers in gasoline and dirty parts and oil since I was a little kid. How did you get first introduced to Corvette, David? Uh, This sounds paradoxical, but at the Chrysler garage. My dad was a Chrysler guy. I live in El Paso, Illinois, which is a small town. That time it was 1,800 people, but it did have a Chrysler garage and an Oldsmobile garage. My dad would go in and spend time with the Chrysler guys at the dealership. And so my introduction to Corvette was a horrible automobile and any Chrysler could beat one. Huh. So I thought Corvettes never paid attention to them. I just knew that they weren't as fast as a Chrysler and I looked down on them, to tell you the truth, because that's, <laughs> that's all I heard from the Chrysler people that my dad was around at the dealership that he bought his Chryslers from. So that was my introduction to Corvette. It was not positive. Well, it obviously turned to a more positive thing. How did that go after that? It did. It actually did. And I can even tell you the date. It was in August of 1961. I was visiting a friend in North Webster, Indiana, which is a kind of a tourist town. It has a lake. Anyway, at night, we were walking down the street because we didn't have any driver's license because we were too young to drive. So we walked everywhere. And as a resort town, this was a perfect setup. It was kind of like an American graffiti night. The street lights lighted, of course, the cars went by. And a white Corvette, I think a 58, came down the street toward us and then made a right turn into a gas station. And as it pulled under these lights, these beautiful, gorgeous lights rippled off the white paint on this Corvette. And I thought, you know, there's a Corvette. And told my buddy at the night, there's a Corvette there, in which we would have kept on walking. With one exception, about six girls came out of nowhere and swarmed around this white Corvette. And all of a sudden, Corvette went from lowest on the totem pole to, I got to get one of those. And (laughs) that was in eighth grade. So that's when the tide turned. And I thought, I think I better reconsider my favorite car. Very smart idea. What Corvettes have you owned in the past, David? And what is in your garage right now? Well, I've had the fortune of being exposed and the fortune of owning several rather historic vehicles that sort of came into because I was the right place, the right time with the right knowledge. At one time owned in partnership with a couple of other people, 367 L88s at the same time. Wow. Had 267 L88s parked in the garage side by side. Very nice. And other cars like that, but owning them wasn't really the objective. They just happened to be things that I thought I could contribute to and hopefully save them. So the only way to save them was to buy them and do the proper things with them to make sure that they didn't get destroyed unknowingly by somebody who didn't know how to take care of them. So there's numerous historic vehicles like that that I've been fortunate to get my hands on and do something to contribute to their long-term survivability. The only thing I have really today is the first Corvette I ever had, which is a 67. So I'm not a collector, or I guess I am a collector of one. Owning one doesn't really mean that much to me. It's what I can do to preserve one or help somebody else preserve one that is historically important. Talk about that thirst for preserving Corvettes and how that led you into forming Bloomington Gold. Well, in 1973, I started showing the Corvette that I just told you that I have. I took it to several Corvette shows. At that time, it was an old car, but think about it. It was 1967, and this is 1973, so it's you know six years old, which at that point in time would be old. So the paint was a little bit faded silver, but everything else was bone stock original. 
And of course, there wasn't a chance in the world I'm going to win anything with a silver 67 coupe with black wall tires and coffee can hubcaps. <laughs> you can't win anything. And I thought, well, gee, going to these car shows back in the early 70s, there were no standards. There were judges that really didn't know what they were doing other than making sure that there was no dirt in the fender wells and the paint was pretty and a nice design. The thing that really caught my attention was there was one winner, usually, and everybody else was a loser. As a marketing guy, I thought, that doesn't look like a sustainable concept. So I thought, the car that's original, it's been left alone, doesn't have a chance unless somebody made it into a station wagon or put stars and stripes on it or glittery wheels or something like that. And I thought, why don't I do something for cars that have not been altered or changed and so forth? So then rather than having one winner and everybody else losing, I thought, what if we set standards like high jumping? And so if you can jump over the high bar at seven feet, we'll certify you that you can jump seven feet. And if you jump six, five, guess what? You don't get certified. So it's not like everybody gets a participant award. But if you set the standards high and don't negotiate, that's what it is. If you can't clear the bar this year, go practice some more and come back because the bar is not going to change. Right. If you can get better, you jump over the bar. So I thought that concept makes sense. And there was a lot of cars out there that had not been restored and had not been modified and had not been customized and made to look glittery. I thought, well, that's a pretty big market. That's a bigger market than the cars that have been changed. So I came up with this idea to certify automobiles the way they would have left the factory. And everybody thought that was the dumbest idea they'd ever heard of. Because I asked a lot of people, what if I created an event that recognized cars that have been left alone in the original condition? And people would say, well, why in the world would you do that? And I explained it. And they said, well, that could be a car out in the parking lot. And I said, yeah, that's exactly the idea. And they said, that's a dumb idea. So anyway, I did it anyway. I had 127 automobiles show up at the first event, of which half of them were furious when they left because they'd never heard of such a concept. They didn't know that's what they were getting into. Attendance at the first Bloomington Gold was, I think, 127 vehicles. And the next one was 80. So it made a pretty big impression that this is not where you want to go if you've got a, quote, show car. I remember a number of people telling me, this is ridiculous. Everywhere I go, I win the best of show. And I didn't even get a certificate here. And I said, right. Yeah, that's right. And he said, I'm never coming back. And I said, that makes good sense because you won't do any better next year either. <laughs> and then gradually, people started saying, well, I got a Bloomington Gold certificate. Basically, people referred to it as Bloomington, and they got a gold certificate. So then ads would start showing up in magazines that they've got this XYZ Corvette for sale with a Bloomington gold certificate. I never did any real serious advertising. All the owners advertised for me by promoting their vehicles with a Bloomington gold certificate and then went from there. Well, and we're going to talk in the second segment a little bit more and dig deeper into your Bloomington Gold years. But David, you've also written books on Corvette restoration. Talk about that book and where people can purchase it. Well, I didn't write it. I contributed to Mike Antonick, who's a very good friend and just a super research guy. Mike wrote Secrets of the Show Cars. He writes the Corvette Black Book, which has been in existence in 78 or something like that. Right. The book was actually written somewhere, I think, around 1980. I think it came out in 81. So Mike is the actual author. I gave him the content. We did it for multiple, multiple times, and I took it all the photography. And the book's Corvette Restoration State of the Art, as you mentioned, and it was the documentation of the first Corvette ever to have been done, to my knowledge. And not just the first Corvette, but I think the first automobile on which a book was written about how to document what a vehicle looks like and then to be able to restore it to exact factory look, which included scratches, 
scuff marks, blemishes that are all factory produced that are documented both through photography of the vehicle before it was taken apart. And also I've got quite a background at the Corvette plant in St. Louis where I knew how the product was built and was there and studied it and recorded it. So the book was sort of a groundbreaker to show people how it could really be done if you really want to do an accurate or authentic restoration to a factory production. Very nice. It was so long ago, and it's almost 40 years ago that we wrote that. Of course, it's, I think, long out of print, but you can still get it on Google. I think you can still look for it, probably 50, 60 bucks, 70 bucks. You can probably buy a copy. Great. And you're also an accomplished pilot. Talk about how that got started, when you soloed, when you got licensed, and when you even became an instructor. Well, I got interested in airplanes before automobiles. I think I started with automobiles maybe at five or six. started with airplanes when I was probably one or two. So by the time I was six, I built 100 flying airplanes, model airplanes. I never remember lifetime without being fascinated and involved with airplanes of some sort. Being grown up on a farm, it was kind of a remote thing because there's no airplanes around here. But I had great space to build airplanes and fly them, rubber band powered and engine powered and so forth. I just progressed and I knew I wanted to be a pilot when I was four, five, six years old. I wanted to be an Indy race driver and or a pilot and was able to get quite a bit of that done. I wanted to be an astronaut to begin with, but eyes weren't good enough, so I didn't make it all that way. But started flying, took the controls for the first time at nine and soloed at 16, a commercial pilot at 18, instructor at 21, and corporate pilot by 23. That's it. absolutely incredible. David, let's take our first break. And in segment number two, we're going to talk about your years and how you started Bloomington Gold on Corvette Today. VetFinders.com is the Internet's original Corvette classified ads website, with classified ads starting at just $25. And every ad runs until your Corvette is sold. If you're in the market for a Corvette, VetFinders.com has over 500 Corvettes for sale from all around the USA and Canada and covering all eight generations. Visit VetFinders.com, the Internet's destination for buying and selling Corvettes. That's V-E-T-T-E, Finders.com. Yogi Berra once said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up there. At True Wealth & Company, we take that to heart. See, at True Wealth & Company, we believe your retirement lifestyle travels through two doors. Door number one, the blue door, gives you more options, financial freedom. Your money outlives you. Every happiness you wish for in life is through the blue door. Door number two, the red door, is where you outlive your money. You rely on family, friends, or even the state to take care of you. At True Wealth & Company, we're not just financial planners. The best way to walk through the blue door is to have a written plan. Make a work-optional lifestyle a reality with our proprietary True Life Map formula. Look towards your future with anticipation, not apprehension. Having a rock-solid fiduciary partner like True Wealth & Company is essential to effective financial planning. There's no winging it. There's nothing left to chance. Look, we don't want you to become another Yogi Berraism. Give us a call today at 913-653-TRUE. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Start your financial independence and work optional lifestyle today. 913-653-8783. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com. Investment advice offered through True Wealth & Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas. This is the Corvette Today podcast with Steve Garrett. 
Thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me today is David Burroughs, the original owner and founder of Bloomington Gold. As a matter of fact, in this second segment, we're going to talk about David's Bloomington Gold years. David, we touched on this in the first segment, and I really like the way you made the concept of Bloomington Gold where you're not judging against somebody else's car. You're judging against a set of standards. Talk about those standards and the level of certification of different things that you can win for Bloomington Gold. Okay, well, to begin with, the standards are based, as we said earlier, on the vehicle has it left the assembly plant. And that's reasonably documentable because there were plenty of vehicles around that we've got photographs of brand new, understanding the plant. So first off, you can't really have an award for something unless you have standards that are documented. So the standards came from how close is the restoration or the preservation of one of these vehicles that you bring to Bloomington Gold? How close is it to the way it left the assembly plant in terms of the configuration, the originality, the condition, and also the technical operation? And kind of back to grade school days and report cards, which is where I took the concept, I thought anything that would be within 95% or greater would be a gold level certification. So that would be gold certified. If it was preserved or restored to between 90 and 94% of factory authenticity, then that would be a silver level of certification. And anything between 85 and 89, which would be equivalent to a C, according to the way that I got my grades in grade school, that would be a bronze certification. So if you came there the first year, and you got everything pretty close, but not quite, and you got a 93%, which is really good, you would be silver certified. And you could quit, or you could come back and make some of the corrections, which we would hopefully point out to you what you could do to bring it up. So it was about educating as much as winning a prize. The whole objective was to preserve these vehicles, or at least restore them accurately, so we don't lose them to history. And then you could come back the next year, and you made your improvements, hopefully, and then guess what? You've got a 96%. It's gold certified. And then, of course, some people say, well, I want to go further than that. I want to get 100%. Well, come back as often as you want. You can go as high as you like. But no matter what you do, you're not going to get anything higher than a gold certificate, period. That's it. So it did away with the I'm better than you are. You're all good. So if you all can jump the seven-foot high bar, well, you all get a certificate. If you jump the five-foot bar, you're going to get a silver certificate and so on. So that really wasn't that complicated for people to figure out, and it caught on. It became something more important than winning a prize. The important thing was that you got to learn some things from people who really didn't know what they were talking about. Because the other secret to this is you have to have people out there who are doing the judging. They have to have standards against which to judge, which before this, nobody had any standards. Everybody just made it up as they went along. So we had judges that were trained properly had to have people skills, and then the owners could come there, enjoy themselves, not worry about beating the next person. All they had to worry about was, can you get within a very, very close tolerance of what it looked like when it left the factory? If you had a custom car, by definition, we're not going to do that because that's antithetical to what the whole point of Lemington Gold was. So we did it for the first two years. We had custom cars in there. In my opinion, it diluted the whole point and confused people about what we really stood for. So that didn't last very long. 
I think now Bloomington Gold is doing that again. I don't know what results they've had. I assume it must have been okay. But at that point in time, the categories or the, the levels of certification were gold, silver, and bronze. And the primary objective was to be a place where people could come and learn and not just get 100 points, but get a 100-point vehicle. And then we tried to draw the distinction between this award isn't about you, the owner. It's about the authenticity of what you brought here. Very nice. Bloomington Gold became the standard for the Corvette industry. You created that standard. Talk about what sets Bloomington Gold apart from other shows or other concours. This is my personal opinion. This is me speaking, nobody else. I don't like car shows. I don't find them necessarily productive. I find them entertaining, but I don't find them productive. And I oftentimes don't find any real great amount of learning that goes on. It's more entertainment, which is fine. I just wasn't interested in entertainment. I was interested in helping people learn. If they wanted to, they could learn how to preserve things or at least restore things accurately. That's all it was designed for. And people determined whether they liked that idea or not. And if you didn't like it, there's plenty of other car shows you can go to. And that's where you should go. So it's kind of like, you know, anything in marketing, you have to stand for something as long as you can appeal to a market that's good enough to support the operation and make a profit on top of it. That's what you do. And that's another thing to mention. Bloomington Gold was never a club. It was a business. It had to be a business because we had a lot of expenses. We paid the judges expenses. We paid for uniforms. We paid for a lot of things, rental of the properties. So it was a true business. It was not political. There was a board of directors, but they weren't elected. It was pretty much dictatorial. I found the people that were competent as financial people or as operations people or tech people, whatever we needed, and paid them, paid them well. So it's not a membership organization. It was a true business created to teach people and give people an incentive to come there. And hopefully everybody would have a good time and enjoy it and get an education out of it. We added other events around it to make it more entertaining as well. You also sold Bloomington Gold at some point, David. Talk about your exit, what came next, and who did you sell it to? There were some other people in the organization. I came into it in 78. It was a swap meet and had some judging, but the judging was very disorganized and a lot of politics. And I don't like politics. I don't like disorganization. So I made a suggestion to the people there then that I got this idea called certification. They thought that was okay. That's where it was introduced was in 78, but it wasn't called Bloomington Gold. It was just called Gold Certification. The marketplace called it Bloomington Gold. They got a Bloomington Gold Certificate. So then I branded it, the actual show then, Bloomington Gold. Anyway, that was in 78 that it started. Gold Certification was in 78. In 83, it was rebranded Bloomington Gold, where a lot of other events came into play, special collection, road tours, restoration workshops, all kinds of other ancillary events for entertainment and education. And then in 1994, some of the other people that were involved with it with me thought that they could run it better than I could. So they decided to buy me out. I gladly took their check. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never left. I'm a professional market research guy with a big company and got out of it at that time. And I was gone for 10 years. Dana Meekham bought it in 1997, I believe. And then he asked me to come back and run certification because he was busy with the auction. And then a little later, he asked me to come back and actually run Bloomington Gold. And so I was gone for 10 years, came back for 10 years. And then Guy Larson bought it from Dana. So I wasn't needed there anymore for that. So Guy bought the brand, bought the show. And then he's the owner and CEO. So then I left that. I was retired at that point from my professional career. 
at that point, I branched into other ventures in authentication. And we're going to talk about that in segment three. Actually, we've had Guy Larson on the podcast. He was the first podcast in 2021. But let's you and I take our final break, David. And in segment number three, we're going to talk about your current company on Corvette Today. American Hydrocarbon, your one-stop shop for custom interior, exterior, and engine bay items for your C4 through C8 Corvette. We can help you create a custom look for your Corvette with carbon fiber or 10 different color patterns and styles. We've served customers in over 28 countries all around the world. Whether it's a custom-made engine cover for your new C8 mid-engine Corvette or custom-made C4 interior upgrades, American Hydrocarbon can help you transform your Corvette into a best-in-class show car. Our products have been featured in VET and Corvette magazines, so give us a call. 813-476-5638. That's 813-476-5638. Visit our website at AmericanHydrocarbon.com or email us at pat at AmericanHydrocarbon.com. Let us help you make your Corvette the car you've always wanted it to be. American Hydrocarbon. KC Trends Motorsports has been the Midwest's largest custom wheel superstore for over 25 years. They specialize in C8 wheel fitments from the top brands in the industry, like HRE, Vossen, ADV1, Avant-Garde, and more. They ship daily from their Kansas City location to all upper 48 states with the best pricing and inventory in the country. Need tires? KC Trends Motorsports has you covered. They have tires in stock from Michelin and Pirelli. Plus, they can help you with a customized wheel and tire combo for your Corvette to truly make it one of a kind. And if you need wheel ideas, no problem. Simply go online to kctrends.com for their car and wheel visualizer. See the wheels on your Corvette before you purchase. Also, there's dozens of wheels and tire combo pictures to look through online to spur your imagination. And their expert staff is there to help you with wheel and tire sizing and offsets for your C6, C7, and C8 Corvette. Visit them online at kctrends.com. See them on Facebook and Instagram. Make any Corvette a one-of-a-kind with KC Trends Motorsports. Call them toll-free, 877-962-5200. KC Trends Motorsports. And now, back to Corvette Today with your host and my husband, Steve Garrett. Hey, thanks for listening to Corvette Today, the podcast that talks about everything Corvette. I'm your host, Steve Garrett. With me today is the original founder of Bloomington Gold, Mr. David Burroughs. In this third segment, we're going to talk about David's current company called Prove It. David, your passion for originality brought you to start this company called Prove It. Talk about the beginnings of it and what the mission of your company is now. Well, I was asked to inspect a race car, as a matter of fact. And it was a Corvette, and it was purported to be a Bonneville race car that was owned by Mickey Thompson. Wow. And it had been restored. Nice restoration. It was quite authentic to the Bonneville livery. It looked just like it did at the track. Not really a track, but at the salt flats. And there would be some significance to it since it was owned by Mickey Thompson. And it had been sold, I think, a couple times. And before it was sold this time, I was asked to authenticate it to make sure that it really was what it was claimed to be. So I did and found out kind of good news and bad news that no, it is not what it's claimed to be. It never was Mickey Thompson's Bonneville race car, which it had been, I guess, around the show circuit for 20 years or so. And that's what it was considered. And then I'm the person that has to bring the news that no, <laughs> it isn't. 
there was forensic evidence and a lot of circumstantial stuff. The main thing was there was physical forensic evidence that showed clearly that is not what it's purported to be because we had documentary photographic evidence from 1963 and 64 when the car did run at Bonneville. This did not match that vehicle. So that's the bad news. The good news was we've determined that Mickey Thompson had far more seat time in this vehicle than in the Bonneville vehicle. Oh. So yes, it was Mickey Thompson's personal car. Mickey Thompson had more to do with this car than he did the Bonneville car. So that was the bad news that turned into good news. Sometimes that does happen. We find out that it's not what it was purported to be, but it is something that kind of got off track in somebody's enthusiasm to maybe make the story better, but they would have been better off if they'd left the story alone in the first place. And so we were able to get that car straightened out, and it has since then gone into, I think, numerous collections with its real history and important history revealed and straightened down. So from that, other people heard about that, and then I got asked to do other authentications, and that's where the name Prove It came from. People would want me to come in and prove whatever it was they wanted to prove, so I branded it Prove It. Since then, that was in 2012, so I've been doing this almost 10 years, I guess, but it has gone from Corvettes into vehicles in general, to airplanes, to iconic movie artifacts, to historic artifacts. Prove It actually does and can do authentications pretty much on anything. It's the process that's important, not the object. We're doing a document that was, I can't tell you I could, but I'm not allowed to. It's a document that went to the moon and circled the moon about 100 times and came back. I can't tell you who took it, but that project is just getting ready to get started to be able to authenticate that that is a document that circled the moon 100 times. That's amazing. Yeah, it's interesting. It's an interesting business. Did a movie jacket that James Dean supposedly wore in Rebel Without a Cause did that. Doing an airplane that was flying during the attack on Pearl Harbor. Wow. It's gone from everything from Bonneville race cars to objects that circled the moon. With your background as a pilot and an aviation mechanic, Prove It also works, obviously, in the automotive and Corvette industry, but aviation as well. That's really a rare combination, David. It's beyond that. We do stuff that's beyond aviation, you know, in the movie business as well. James Dean's jacket had nothing to do with automobiles or aviation. It's the process we go through to authenticate something. Forensically, testimony, records, all sorts of things you have to go through, and every project is totally different. The thing that's unique about Prove It is is the process we use and how we do it and then who makes the decision, whether it's authentic or not authentic or how confident we are, because I'm not the person that makes the decision. Anybody who has something authenticated by Prove It, the interesting thing is nobody can pay anybody off because if you were the client, you wouldn't know who to pay off to make it come out your way. But we come in, we do the research, you give us your information and then we look for somebody who disagrees with you and has the other point of view. And then we get research from them and we go through and we actually build two cases. We build one for you and we build one against you. And then you get to look at all that evidence and correct it if we'd said it wrong. And then the counterparty can look through their evidence. And then that evidence goes through a review and then eventually goes out to a jury of critical thinkers like test pilots, surgeons, attorneys, anybody who has as a profession something is looking at evidence and making a conclusion. When the evidence goes out to that panel or that jury of five, the jury doesn't know who the other four people are. And you, the client, don't know who the jury is. So you can't pay me off because I don't make the decision. I just gather the evidence and we present the evidence on both sides of the argument. So you can't pay me off because I don't do anything other than organize the research and coordinate it. You can't pay the witnesses off because there's too many of them. You can't pay the jury off because you don't know who they are. And the jury can't get together 
and collude against you because the jury doesn't know who the other four analysts are. So it's the only, I've been told anyway, that this is the only authentication service that's that rigorous. So when you get an authentication promise, why you can pretty well take it to the bank. Very unique. You're also, David, a four-time national aerobatic champion and an eight-time national formation champion. Talk about those two titles. That's really cool. <laughs> Not much to talk about. I fly airplanes upside down and right side up, and <laughs> straight up, and straight down. Do it a little bit more precisely than whoever I was competing against those four times. Formation flying is quite different. That's kind of like what the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels do, except we're not nearly that fast. We fly much slower World War II airplanes. I wouldn't call it a hobby. It's just a very interesting lifestyle to fly with people like that, that are that well-trained and you have the trust to fly with those kinds of people. So it's very rewarding to be around those kinds of people. Very unique too. You also set restoration standards because of your ties to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. Talk about how those standards helped you with Corvette and aircraft as well. Precision documentation, that's critical, whether it's improvement or anything else. We, know, we look at things in a very, very different way than, quote, car show judges do or beauty queen judges and things like that. This is a whole different mindset, of which drives probably most people crazy, and they would think that that's ridiculous. And it is ridiculous unless you've got something that has high value to it. It's very important. I'm not tied to the Smithsonian in any professional way. I just happen to, again, have the good fortune of knowing people at the Smithsonian and have had for about 20 years. So I've gone out, studied their processes, how they do things. When they do a restoration, for example, I do the same thing. I learned it from their procedures. As they take a nut, bolt, and washer out or off of something, that nut, bolt, and washer is never separated, and it's documented as to which hole it came out of, left rear, right rear, top, bottom, wherever. That's all documented. It goes in a little plastic bag. And if that gets replated, it's all remembered, photographed. And then when it comes back and goes back on the artifact, that bolt, washer, and nut go back in the same hole in the same order to the same number of turns on the bolt. So that's ridiculously precise and totally useless to (laughs) to most people. (laughs) And it would drive most sane people insane. But when you're in the business of trying to document some high risk and high value artifact, whether it's an airplane, race car, lunar lander, or whatever it happens to be, it's important to do that because that does show provenance. It shows documentation that this is the real artifact. This has not been replaced with other hardware bolts. This is the bolt that came out of that race car that raced at Le Mans or raced at Indianapolis, driven by Mario Andretti. This is the same seat. This is the same stitching in the seat that John Kennedy was in, et cetera, et cetera. So those kinds of things are appropriate for the Smithsonian. For the regular garden variety restorer, that would be ridiculous and terribly expensive and unnecessary. But that's the mentality when you're in the kind of business that I'm in now. We have to look at things very carefully because that can turn a case from an original artifact to a fabrication, that it's authentic fabrication, but it's a fabrication nonetheless, and that is not the part that was on the Indy 500 car that Andretti drove. So that's the tie-in to the Smithsonian. David, if somebody wants to get in touch with you at Prove It, how can they reach you? Best way is email or a website. The website is prove-it.net, proveit.net with a hyphen between prove and it. That sounds good. David, thank you so much for being on Corvette today. The stories were just amazing, and best of luck with Prove It. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Corvette today, and thanks to our sponsors, American Hydrocarbon at AmericanHydrocarbon.com and KC Trends Motorsports at KCTrends.com. 
And don't forget eTech Custom Coatings at etekcustomcoatings.com or call 913-745-3732. You've been listening to Corvette Today with Steve Garrett. If you'd like to contact Steve with any thoughts on the podcast or ideas for guests on Corvette Today, you can email him at stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. That's stevegarrettdj at gmail.com. Garrett has two R's and two T's. Or connect with Steve on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram using at stevegarrettdj. Thanks again for listening to Corvette Today.